Welcome to episode 205 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Three weeks ago, giant assurance and risk management firm DNV released its Energy Transition Outlook North America report. $12 trillion, yes, folks, $12 trillion, that's a lot of cash, will be spent in between the two countries on grid and renewables between now and 2050. Marion Hill, DNV's Senior VP of Renewables and Power Grids, North America, is going to join me to talk about the report. She's located in Montreal. So welcome to the interview, Marion. Thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity today. How is uh, autumn in Montreal? Autumn is fabulous. Beautiful weather this week. It's summer. We're just absorbing the heat and we know what's coming up over the next few months. <laughs> Indeed. My, my wife and I were thinking of going out to Montreal actually around this time. And unfortunately, we have a little, a little, uh, our dog is about, you know, going on 18 years old and is senile and she just can't be put in a kennel or left with anybody else. And so we had to cancel, you know, our plans for our trip. But man, oh man, we have wanted to go to Montreal for a long time. If no, if for no other reason than to eat, right? <laughs> eat, great culture, great museums, great, great opportunity, lots of festivals all summer long that you know should really make that creative city enable the ideas to flow. It's, it's just a fabulous place to be. And Montreal Canadiens hockey games. Got to admit that's a bit of an attraction. Okay, <laughs> well, let's talk about your report because, uh, and let's let's. Uh, start at the, the 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 biggest level or the highest level at this point because I make this point all the time, which is that essentially the energy transition is about switching to electricity. We're going to electrify everything. We're going to electrify transportation. We're going to we're going to switch in a power sector to renewables, geothermal, other forms of of low or no emission uh, power generation. We're going to electrify our homes, switch to heat pumps. We're going to, to the extent we can, we're going to electrify industrial processes, maybe switch to other low carbon fuels like hydrogen. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, this is the plan. And, and it's we're not doing it. We're, yes, it's driven partly by policy. And certainly that was true in the you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Climate policy played a big part of that. I know you dealt with that in your report. But now the, these technologies have become more efficient and cost-effective. They're now they're on the S curve. They passed the inflection point, and they're competing in the market with fossil fuel-based technologies. This is the disruptive decade, disruptive part of the energy transition, where you know fossil fuels like oil and gas, oil in particular, has never had competition. 125 years, it does now from electricity. So what that means is, of course, is that all of the infrastructure, the, the power grid distribution, power generation, all has to be modernized, upgraded, and it's going to be an expensive job. Have I got that kind of right? Is that, we, you know, this is a switch to electricity. Now we have to go build the infrastructure to support it. Yes, there's a major shift to electricity, decarbonization, electrification of as much as we possibly can through transportation, through heating. Um, because we have an opportunity here to decarbonize our electrical grids and we have technologies that are the cheapest forms of energy in wind and solar that are going to disrupt the way that we generate electricity, the way that we consume electricity, the way that our grids are gonna be operated. And we have the ability to manage supply side to match the, the to, to, to manage the demand to match the supply side as this is a major shift instead of having 
our, our generation capacity matching demand will but the other way around and that demand will match our generation capacity with respect to the time of day of renewables of storage and, and cheapest cost of electricity. Maybe let's explore that a little bit. So demand will will match supply. And we're going to do that by shifting load with batteries and, and market design and, and other demand response, that, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So the, the grids today, we, we match our supply to the demand. But as we electrify, as we have smarter consumption of, of electricity, we'll be able to have the future grids will be matching the demand to when there's the greatest amount of renewables. And so this is a major shift of our electricity grids and how it's gonna be delivered. And fantastic opportunities for us to electrify at a lower cost and decrease the overall energy cost for all consumers across North America. Yeah, that's an interesting point that came out in your uh, in your study is because of the intrinsic efficiency of renewables and uh, and and electrification general generally. Uh, and we should point out here, I mean, you know, an automobile, the only reason an automobile works is because, you know, the internal combustion engine has an efficiency of about 25 percent, maybe maybe in the best case, 30 percent, 45 percent in the case of a diesel engine. Whereas an electric motor is like 90, 95, maybe even 97%. The only reason the, the the internal combustion engine works is because of the energy density of gasoline. And so as, as batteries improve, the energy density of batteries improve, the, the equation, the relative balance here is now shifted over into electric transportation because of the efficiency of electric motors. The electrification will result in household energy bills that are halved by 2050 as they reap the opportunities of cheaper electricity by renewables. And this is a tremendous opportunity to decrease the amount that we're paying every individual across um, across uh, across politics to, that are decreasing their energy bills because of the, the energy transition. You know, there's a lot of pushback on that now. I'm sure in five years from now, you know, maybe like 2030, when more there's more evidence and it's more commonly accepted. But I see all the time. I see Premier Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. I I see people on social media. I see energy ministers who should know better, who are saying, no, 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 renewables are going to drive up costs. And there's never been a case where renewables were a significant portion of the grid where costs actually went down. They're always it's always going up. And of course, that's not true because there are so many other variables that go into determining electricity prices. Like in Alberta, you know, they have a problem there called economic withholding. They have the only in open wholesale market in the country. And they've got four or five of these big generators like Transelta and that and so on. And the big generators, one of them can decide, say, you know what, I'm not going to generate as much electricity as the market, you know, is calling for. I'm going to withhold that that generating capacity, and I'm going to drive the price up to $1,000 a megawatt hour. So even though I'm generating less, I'm making more. And so are my my buddies, you know, who are in the other utilities. And so Alberta's, uh, just in the last two years, Alberta's electricity price have doubled. They're now around $30 a, a megawatt hour. Uh, no, sorry, it's more It's more than that. But anyway, they've, they've doubled. And, and when nobody else has gone up more than 10 or 12% at, at most, and but that gets blamed on renewables because you know these are complex issues and not everybody understands how markets work and and how and all of the 
anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, except to point out, you know, that that in all of this disruption, there still is a lot of pushback and, and resistance, even at the government level. There's going to be a lot of resistance to change, to, to market changes, to, to, to consumer behavior changes. Renewables is reliable and the the business models related to storage, related to time shifting, related to capacity are proving. And we're proving that this can be done effectively, that it can be done cost effectively and reliably. It will be absolutely harder in thermal dominated grids in the Midwest, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, where natural gas is currently the, 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 the source of energy that is matching the demand. But as we become more smart on the on the demand side, we will be able to adjust the demand to match some of the supply. And the supply will also continue with storage, will continue to to uh to to evolve, to to select better times of day. And when we bring an interregional interconnection, it will facilitate the resiliency of the systems, the interconnection, and bring the cheap, abundant renewables at our low cost to some of these grids. Um, that can benefit from low-cost um, electricity. I, I want to tell a story about uh, uh, a couple months ago, three months ago, I was sitting on the journalist panel in a U.S. Energy Association uh, technical briefing, and one of the, the experts was uh, Lanny Price, who is a vice president with PJM, the Regional Transmission Organization, which I think is 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 part of, it looks after I want to say the northeastern seaboard, but I may not be correct, but it doesn't matter. The, the point here, Lanny made a couple of points that really stood up. One is they want to they want to build as as much renewable capacity as they can. They can't. There's supply chain uh, problems right now. Costs have risen. You know, it, it, so getting the equipment, getting it into the queue, getting it connected to the grid, all of that is more difficult than it was a while ago. But there's another thing he said that caught my attention. He said. You know, we had a couple of weeks where uh, where our wind capacity, uh, there was a lull. And so they weren't getting near what they had they had planned, and they had to buy electricity from neighboring grids and and import it so that they could meet meet their demand. And they squeaked through, but you know, so that's a problem. And but he said, we have to talk to regulators because some of the utilities are shutting down thermal plants. Uh, too much capa thermal capacity is being shut down too quickly. You know, we 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 just thought this was a seamless transition between thermal and renewables. We're finding that's not the case, and we need to keep some of this thermal capacity uh, on stream as a backup. Because, you know, it, it gets 10, 20, 30 below, and you really, really don't want people freezing. And we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll figure that out. Five, 10, 20 years from now, we'll have it all figured out and we'll be much more reliable. But for now, we need some of that thermal capacity. Is that is that a fair comment? Yes, absolutely. Uh, thermal capacity will remain a part of the electricity grid for, for many years to come. Um, and a critical part, um, but a decreasing part as we find other solutions to bring in the reliability and, avail and availability of both the renewables, but also the the usage of electricity evolves. And so until we find the solutions um, to balance things out, we do need natural gas and it will be part of the grid. We're in a transition. It's not a revolution. It's not a, a cliff on, on, on thermal. It's a, it's, a, it's a transition and we still need thermal energy for, for many years to come.
Yeah, this is a bugaboo of mine. I mean, you know, people say, well, we can't do it today. Dude, it's a transition. The very meaning of transition is change from one state to another state over time. And energy transitions usually take 50, 60, 70 years. Stop setting up this straw man, you know, to prop up your bogus arguments about why this newer technology is, isn't going to work. Anyway, a little rant on my part, because this irritates me. I, I see it all the time. And, uh, but I, I want to, you know, most of the listeners, I think in our podcast are from Canada and here we have not changed as quickly as the Americans and, and say China and, and Europe, uh, because I mean, really we 84% clean electricity already. We get 60% hydro, 17% nuclear, seven, you know, seven or 8% wind and solar. Uh, so there's no crying need in, or it hasn't been to decarbonize our grid. We have one of the cleanest grids in the world. We also have, it's pretty well, you know, it's pretty well run with, aside from Alberta, which seems to be having problems with everything these days in Saskatchewan, which has had so much coal and doesn't want to get rid of it. But for the most part, you know, it's, there are grids, which are not connected very much. We're, we're like 10 little, you know, islands in plus the, the territories. So we'll call them 13 islands. They don't talk to each other much, don't trade electricity very much. But nevertheless, you know, it's been a fairly stable, low-cost, reliable system. The Americans, not so much. They've had a, their grid was was neglected and hasn't been modernized. It, it uh, It's way behind. And so, and it had, I think, like 61% coal not that long ago. And they've been switching over to gas and then they're importing renewables and they get problems with nuclear. And I mean, it, it's, and, but there, they, they're, much more interconnected so the grids are are tied into each other um they've switched over to they've switched over from the you know the old regulated uh system uh much more quickly than than we have and they have these planning organizations they have a federal regulator FERC they have regional planning organizations in regional transmission uh, organizations are called and so they have the ability to mobilize capital and mobilize regulation much, much, much quicker than we do. And it is a pandemonium south of the border. As you know, they are trying to, to switch, to, to, to modernize their grid and, and integrate renewable energy and all sorts of other stuff in a very short time. Have I, am I reading this right? And Canadians don't get it. I mean, that the, the, most Canadians just aren't familiar with what's going on in the American power sector. Am I reading this correctly? Yes. Well, the, the American power sector is, is very complex and there's lots of different independent system operators, um, but there is undergoing immense change. Um, and we're seeing the investments driven from the Inflation Reduction Act, um, from the Department of Energy that are driving uh, strategy, driving investments, driving driving down costs. Um, having some moonshot ideas of how to get to offshore wind, how to get to, to transmission grids. Um, there's also a lot of innovation in due to the open markets, there's advantages and disadvantages to having some of the open markets, but there's a lot of new business models where we're seeing green data centers, we're seeing green crypto um, that are using the abundant, the excess abundant renewables in to decarbonize sectors that have been heavily intensively um, carbon intensive. And so 
Uh, there's also a lot of corporations that are looking very aggressively at 24-7 load matching and how do they match up wind plus solar plus storage plus hydro to build up a 24-7 a load matching so that they're they're fully green 20 all years of all hours of the year. And those are some of the innovations that we don't have yet in Canada because we don't have innovative uh, power markets um, and we can't build up some of the innovations. For example, there's a lot of curtailment in Ontario that could be used in, in more effective ways than just um, compensating the, the operators of wind and solar facilities when there's congestion in the market. Um, that could be used in producing green hydrogen, that could be used in green data centers or, or decarbonizing other sectors. And so we still have opportunities to learn of how things are done uh, in the U.S. to bring some of the innovations over um, to help our corporations to help drive the, the decarbonization of the grids in, in Canada. And there's the grid, but as we electrify a lot more load um, and our, our transportation is not green. And so while we say our electricity system is 83, 84% green, our energy system is not. Um, and so there's still a tremendous amount of work to decarbonize our overall energy use in Canada. Um, and that some of that will come from transportation, through electric vehicles, um, through transportation, through uh, trains, uh, airplanes and shipping that all needs to be decarbonized. Uh, there's a project in the in Los Angeles that really is, is has caught my attention. Um, it's High Deal, I think it's called. But I mean, it, it's a it's like a hydrogen hub, and it's got the city of Los Angeles and numerous partners. In fact, I interviewed one of the Canadian partners uh, from Alberta uh, last year, and the idea is to take that tremendous amount of solar, some of which is curtailed and. Uh, and not, you know, basically dumped, as it were, uh, and to create green hydrogen, which then would be stored. And so when the sun goes down and uh, or the wind isn't blowing enough, you've you've got these uh, uh, these caverns full of, of hydrogen or storage facilities full of hydrogen, which you can then pump into uh, former gas power plants which can which can be rigged to run on on hydrogen the turbines you can now buy dual use turbines natural gas or hydrogen and so they would these would be converted uh over time and by 2030 they want to be able to build enough hydrogen that and then and, and here's the thing they don't ship it you don't have to ship it very far i i interviewed a a vancouver somebody who's in the hydrogen distribution business and he said like you can you can ship hydrogen economically about 100 kilometers you know that's really about it you just the physics don't work to ship it more than that so if you're creating the hydrogen very close to these plants these power plants that have been converted then all of that solar now instead of being sold in the market cheap to bc uh for example now it's going to, to do something for for los angeles and not only they will they use that as part of their decarbonization grid decarbonization efforts but you know presumably might lower costs as well and what we're seeing in the us is projects like that pop up all over the place yes absolutely we absolutely believe that there is a role um, for hydrogen as an energy carrier as a long-term storage um, solution to help decarbonize the grids beyond what lithium ion or longer term longer ter term battery storage can offer. Um, there's not all applications of hydrogen that are, are decarbonizing, but when we focus the applications of hydrogen on, on 
hard to abate sectors to decarbonize as a high energy, high temperature fuel um, for the hard to abate times of the day of usage on the electrical grid, then those are periods that we can make a material difference in using hydrogen to decarbonize the grid. And so we need to focus on decarbonizing um, blue hydrogen to have it um, produced by green hydrogen. Um, and then those hard to abate sectors and hard to abate hours of the day on the grid are exactly places where hydrogen can play a material difference to decarbonize. Now, here's a little fact or a little tidbit from your report. And, and this has been backed up by other uh, modelers that I've interviewed over the years. But you're saying that grid power grids must undergo uh, an expansion of two and a half times by, by 2050. And uh, Dr. Chris Bataille, for example, mentioned this years years ago to me that their their modeling shows that uh, that developed economies like Canada and the U.S. will be two to three times, and for uh, emerging economies, three to five times expansion of, of the grid. The question I have for you is: given all of the the new technology we, we talk, the new technologies we have around microgrids and demand response and community solar and and on and on and on is any chance that that might eat into the projections for for new transmission uh investments i mean if you can you know in my town parksville on vancouver island 10,000 people I can I could foresee you know where you maybe have some I don't know solar let's say community solar we build a microgrid and and we're only you know attached to the to the BC hydro grid for emergencies or you know when the, the sun isn't shining whatever uh, but you don't have to if we're gonna if we were to increase our consumption here by two point five percent or two two point five times. You know, instead of expanding the grid and all the distribution and all of that kind of stuff, go with the microgrid. I don't know. Is that just too simplistic? No, it's all part of the solution. Um, microgrids, non-wild alternatives, storage are need to be done first. Um, the the inter-transmission grid um, capacity is, is relevant for resiliency of grids, um, for longer term um days or, or seasons and, and weeks of time when there's major differences in wind or solar resources. So yes, absolutely. Get the microgrids on first, get the non-wild alternatives. Um, but beyond that, there is more grid capacity that's needed as we increase the amount of electrification. And there's a tremendous amount of innovation on the transmission grids right now. And so where we haven't invested in and trained up a lot of electrical engineers and power grids over the past two decades in North America, the amount of innovation that's currently happening is tremendous and it's very exciting. And so we, we do need a lot of new engineers coming up through schools that are coming up with, with ideas and, and capabilities on the transmission grid, because these are areas that are so critical and, and critically uh, to finding the solutions on the decarbonizing the overall power grid. Yeah, I, I'm on the, the mailing list for a group. And in fact, I've interviewed them once or twice and uh, down in the U.S. And they advocate for these uh, grid saving technologies. So uh, some of them are software and some of them are hardware. Uh, but when applied to existing grids, sometimes, you know, you can get up to two, maybe three times as much like, uh, uh, power on the, the same transmission lines. 
without inc you know adding uh, new lines or increasing the capacity of well, you increase the capacity of the existing lines. What what about that kind of technology? Absolutely. So we want to maximize the use of existing technology. Any new lines that are built have an environmental impact, have a social impact and, and are high risk. And so that's not what we want to do in the energy transition. We want to decrease our overall impact environmentally and socially. So we want to avoid new lines being built. And we want to find all the technical solutions that we can with non-well alternatives to better usage of the transmission grid to not build new transmission lines. However, when, when new transmission lines are necessary to, to connect new generation sources to, to load, to build up that interregional resiliency so that there's not an islanding situation or a major weather event. We're going to have more number of major weather events, hail, uh, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes that, that require a grid to be resilient in, in low temperatures, for example. Um, that, that's where the interregional capacity and interconnection can facilitate the, the abundant, clean, low-cost electricity grid. Um, but we have to make sure that we use all the technical solutions before we build, we build new transmission lines. In the same way, we want to be much more energy efficient, decrease the overall consumption of electricity before we build new generation. I wanted to get your opinion on an idea that we've talked about many times on this podcast, uh, and, and that is in Canada, uh, doing east-west grid interties between the hydro provinces of BC, Manitoba, Quebec, and Newfoundland, Labrador, and the other provinces which don't have hydro or a lot of hydro, in the case of Ontario. Because one of the things that economists are saying is that not all electricity is, is uh, created equal. The dispatchable, firmed, firming power, dispatchable uh, electricity uh, is valued more highly than even low-cost intermittent uh, uh, electricity. And, but if you, can, if you can connect the two of them so that when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing and you're creating all this, you know, really like, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour uh, power from renewables, you can essentially store it, some of it, using these hydro dams. And I don't know, you know, to so many people have, have told me, you know, this makes so much sense. And then followed by the question, why the heck aren't we doing it? And do you see any progress towards east-west interties in Canada? It's pretty challenging. We, we did see an announcement between greater collaboration between Quebec and Ontario. Um, there's always been discussion between Northern Alberta and British Columbia. So there is there are discussions, um, but some of the most recent transmission lines that have been built have been from the, the Northern hydro provinces to the Southern neighbors. Um, and so that is potentially where there's less politics involved and greater ability to collaborate commercially. Um, and so either way, whether we're decarbonizing between Ontario and Quebec, Alberta and British Columbia or British Columbia and down to California, Quebec down to the Northeast is overall a decarbonizing effect. And so we have there's politics involved we can see it through the atlantic loop the challenges the different provinces are having and trying to find the balancing uh, the challenges between quebec and newfoundland on on hydro reserves and and historic uh agreements they're creating a very challenging environment to negotiate new uh agreements um and so yes there's always hope and desire that we can build interregional provincial ties 
Um, but if their ties end up being from the, the north to the south, where there is greater uh, political and, and commercial collaboration, that can still have a greater impact or, um, than, than no ties being built. Well, let me give you the counter argument to that, because I think it's fair to say now, and I, and I come to this observation from covering stories, but also from interviewing um, uh, uh, companies that are looking to locate, might be building a battery plant or there, but some other sort of clean energy industry, which is where all the action is these days in manufacturing. And and they tell me that the, the first citing criterion is access to reliable, low-cost, clean electricity. That's number one. So because, uh, you know, increasingly we're looking at the carbon content of not only the products, but also of the supply chains. And so they know they're going to be accountable for that and, and they need to be net zero and all of that. So that is the first thing they want. So the idea that we're sending all of this hydropower, and I, by, I say we, I mean Canada, is sending all of this hydropower south of the border where it's just treated like another another kilowatt hour right it's it doesn't it doesn't bring any particular in i think in most cases a higher value because it's it's firm and dispatchable it's just and where we could use that up in canada and say you know what we're going to do we're going to take a rational approach to this and we're going to plan east west power grid we're going to bring an abundance of low-cost, reliable, clean electricity here. And then we're going to use that as part of an industrial strategy. And we're going to go out and we're attract battery plants and EV plants because, you know, manufacturers in, in this space, they value things that Canada brings to the table, critical minerals, uh, the uh, clean electricity, uh, stable political stable political government and regulatory regimes. You know, if you're looking outside of North America, you know that's that's not not and that's not nothing, as the kids say. And and if we and then we we took a rational approach to this and we said, here's our competitive advantage, and boy, it's a big one. And and you know, come and, and bring your capital. We don't have a capital inside Canada to develop, you know, lemonade stand. We got to bring in capital for everything. So fair enough. We're going to have to go out and, and talk to companies and investors. But what a competitive advantage. And it just seems like we're peeing it away. Politics and short-term profits and, you know, all, all the rest of it. And here we are. We're standing on the threshold of the, the, the next big industrial revolution, the sixth industrial revolution, as, as some people call it. And this is our opportunity to get away from being hewers of wood and drawers of water. My God, if there, there will never be, there will be another hundred years before we get this opportunity again. And Canadians are going, eh, eh, I don't care. I'm going to Tim Hortons for a double-double. It drives me nuts. Yeah, no, figuring out though, how do we get green jobs? How do we ensure that our population is, is benefiting from the energy transition, from the, the great jobs that are available is, is critical. And so, Yes, ideally, we get over all the political political differences between provinces and we build out interregional connections. Um, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank is one option to, to facilitate some of those discussions, um, but the ISOs are, are quite strong and, and, and very independent. Um, and so it's, it's gonna take a lot of political will and a desire to collaborate to have that bigger picture ambition 
political desire to have big, big ideas and, and, and dream what it can be like in the future. So it, it's not impossible. We have to continue trying. Um, but I do think at the same time, the, the green energy uh, is is um, is recognized in the U.S. Um, to firm up, um, to firm, to, to, to deliver reliability and, and capacity. And so they, they are paying some premium prices to to get some of the, the green electricity from Canada. Well, okay. And I know, you know, there are crown corporations around here, like, you know, Hydro-Quebec and, and BC Hydro and, and so on that make a good buck at it, uh, generate significant uh, profits, which then go back to governments. And boy, don't politicians these days like to have revenue that they can then turn around and and balance their budgets or give it back in terms of social programs. But I don't know. BC Hydro, okay, let me back up. So the BC NDP gets elected in, in 2017, and they come in with Clean BC in 2018, and, and it's got very aggressive uh, decarbonization, you know, climate targets and all of that, and electric electrification is a big part of it. And then they don't give any directions to BC Hydro like specific legislative directions. And so poor BC Hydro is sitting there going, well, how do I plan for that? How do I do an integrated load plan for that? And so finally, the, the government got its act together. And last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, BC finally comes out with its IRP, its integrated resource plan. And lo and behold, now they're back to planning for 2% growth, 2% load growth per year. And over the course of 30 years, that's more than 2% of 2%. It's a lot. I mean, it kind of backs up what, what you're saying. And uh, this kind of lax, you know, relaxed, laissez-faire kind of, eh, you know, we'll get around to it. We'll muddle through. Matter of fact, I've heard policymakers in Ottawa. We, I was sitting on a panel one time and a very influential economist and former bureaucrat said, eh, We've always muddled through. We'll muddle through this time. Don't worry about it. We, we got this. I'm sitting there grinding my teeth at the other end of the, the panel. Irked me to no end. But nevertheless, this is kind of, you know, we're starting to wake up. But boy, what do we do? What kind of cattle prod do we apply to governments and politicians and, and bureaucrats to get them to move quicker? It's a lot of education because at the energy transition is complex, understanding all the different issues, all the different opportunities and, and be able to, to decipher between all the different lobbyists that are coming to them about what their desires are because the energy transition also creates uncertainty. And, and, and so there's a constant education that we need to do to ensure that they have the data, they have the vision, they have the visibility, they have the, the big picture opportunities in front of them and understand what are the different business models that they can be applying, what are the different opportunities. And particularly in Canada right now, when we see that there's already been $240 billion committed under the IRA in the US and the number of 30, 40, 50 manufacturing facilities already being committed to build out, we have to drive this faster. We still have the details of the investment tax credits that the government, Canadian government has promised to, to catch up and then the manufacturers are going to be going to the U.S. because there's greater certainty and there's greater investment. Um, and so we need in Canada to 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 accelerate. Otherwise, the, the manufacturers will be established in the U.S. sooner. And then we won't be able to benefit from the clean jobs and the abundant uh, electricity that we have at, at lower costs and the, the stable political government. 
I will say the only reason the Americans are doing this is because they woke up in 2020 and went, I mean, this is driven by a geopolitical conflict with China. And they finally realized, hey, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago, China started, uh, they knew they weren't ever going to catch us in, uh, you know, uh, auto industry. They weren't going to catch up to our tech. They weren't going to be as good as us in that. So they went, okay, China was said, okay, we're going to, we're going to invest in new energy technology. So wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles and heat pumps. And now a couple of three decades down the road, they're dominant. They absolutely dominate the, the manufacturing capacity. They dominate global supply chains and processing capacity and all of that stuff. And America woke up and said, holy crap, we missed it. We missed it. You know, here was the next industrial revolution. Instead of being leaders in it, we're now second banana to China. We might even be third banana to Europe. Americans don't like that. Americans the Americans like to be leaders in everything. They're the, the big, big kahuna on the block and and so that got them motivated. Now there's political, there's political consensus that they need that the the China is going to be that's going to be the next quote unquote Cold War politically and militarily. And on all of this fits together. All of it fits together. Supply chains and manufacturing capacity, all of it. And so the Americans went, you know, the switch clicked. And then away they went in typical American style. And you got the IRA and the Chips Act and the Infrastructure Act and, and all of that stuff. And that's wonderful. And I'm wondering what it's going to take for the Canadians to have that moment where the light bulb comes on and they go, oh, crap. And I think it's partly happened in, in the, the pressure that the IRA puts. I mean, the IRA could be a trillion dollars because we don't they don't they haven't figured out they haven't they don't know what the value of the investment tax credits are going to be in 2032 or 2033. They think it'll be a lot more than 369 billion could be half a you know, half a trillion could be a full trillion in, in some cases. So, you know, we've kind of woke up, but in typical Canadian fashion, not really, you know. So what do you think it will take? What kind of event or development will it will it take for us? And maybe I, you know, you're not a you're not a political scientist. So if, if you haven't got an answer for this, that's OK. But any thoughts on what it might take to get us to finally rouse ourselves and really become leaders in the global energy transition? We're definitely followers. We're followers um, and not necessarily fast followers in a lot of it. We don't have the oh, ownership dear. of the technology. We don't have the ownership of the batteries, of the solar, of the wind. Um, we have some ownership of high voltage um Distribution grids, so HVDC is one area where we do have some, some unique knowledge in Manitoba that has been exported internationally. Um, but other than, and, and that is a major part of the of the uh, energy transition is having high voltage distribution grids. And so that is a place where we can differentiate and dominate, um, but we need to, to expand that quickly um, because of the rate of pace of build out and knowledge build out that's gonna come in Europe and in the US. So we're, a, we're a follower. We the the abundance of energy resources that we've had in the past um, makes us. And that, as you identified at the beginning, the the fact that we are already at an eighty three percent decarbonized grid didn't give us that urgency um, to to act um, as quickly as others. And so, you know, we'll be a, we'll be a taker on prices for modules, a taker on prices for turbines, a taker on prices for 
for battery storage. There's starting to be some battery storage announcements for manufacturers starting to establish in Canada. That's a lot of the, the jobs trying to move from auto manufacturing to, to batteries. Um, but we, you know, we need to get some of those jobs to ensure that we continue to have good unionized jobs that are enabled um, and sustainable for the, for the long term as we transition away from other sectors that are too carbon intensive or, or too costly to, to continue to manufacture in Canada. I, I want to talk for just a little bit about uh, AE Rogers technology adoption bell curve, because this seems to, you know, we're, here we are talking about Canada being followers. This is relevant. So everybody knows the, the first couple of categories on this bell curve, which is innovators, which make up about two and a half percent of consumers. Then you've got early adopters, which are up to 11%. And then you've got early majority adopters, 11% to 34%. And, and my wife and I fit into this, this, this is where we buy things. We don't buy things at the early stage because we, we we're not willing to accept high risk and high price and low value. We need more lower price, lower risk, higher value before we're ready to you know, journalists don't make a lot of money. You got to be careful with our cash. So it makes us an early majority adopter. That takes you to 50%, halfway up the, the curve. And then the last two categories are late majority adopter and laggard. And I would argue that much of Canada, we are on the other side of the middle and we're into late majority adopter uh, and laggards. And the, and, and the reason why this is important because it it goes to how we evaluate those three things, risk, price, and value. And in Canada, we are not prepared. Look at the look at the debates around government investing in things, right? Here it's, oh my God, we can't do that. It's too risky. We might lose a buck of tax, uh, taxpayer dollars. The Americans, clah, throw it out there. We're gonna, you know, we know we're gonna take some losses, whatever. You know, that's just, that's the price of being in the business. We're going to break some stuff, but boy, in the process of breaking some stuff and wasting some money, we're going to come up with all of these great technologies with that. Then we'll de-risk using public dollars and then we'll allow the private sector to go out and commercialize and we'll support them to scale up and do all this kind of stuff. They're innovators and early adopters. We are late majority adopters. And that has, and I, and, you know, we're talking about a century and a half of, building a culture here. I mean, you know, we're not going to change that on on the turn of a dime, but but that seems to me to, you know, because this is, I live in this world. I'm always thinking about technology in these terms. This is the thing that, one of the big things that differentiates Canadians from Americans around the energy transition. Yeah, absolutely. We've been spoiled by having reliable electricity by having very stable monopoly uh, utilities in each of our different provinces um, that, that are comfortable, that del have delivered. And there's a good relationship between most of the, the rate payers and the utilities. That hasn't been the case in the US. They've had major events, major outages in, in Texas with major, there's deaths associated with some of the storm Uri. And so that creates a totally different dynamic. It creates a different dynamic of urgency to innovate, of urgency to innovate in business models, urgency to innovate in, in, in technologies, and also very, very uh, huge amounts of population that were mining coal and that shutting down and they need to get jobs in and transition these the, the coal mining jobs to new green tech jobs and high pay to ensure that we are 
uh, enabling a, an equitable transition. And so there's been a different level of urgency in the US than we have had in Canada because we had been very comfortable um, and, and not as exposed to a lot of geopolitical tensions or geopolitical wars, We're not spending as much of our GDP on, on, uh, on, on geopolitical uh, stability. And so you know, being in that comfortable zone has ena enabled us to, to move a lot slower, um, but in, it's unfortunately positioned us where we're not getting the benefits or reaping the benefits of, of new manufacturing, new technology, new positions, new jobs that are on the forefront of the energy transition. I have a little uh, glib cliche about that or a, the, an aphorism. And that is, if you don't build it, you got to buy it. And so there's been a lot of discussion around in Canada around a couple of big, uh, the Stellantis and the VW uh, battery plants that are going to, I think together, they're going to get $28 billion from the federal government. And I, I've seen, you know, a wonderful guy that I know, he's an economist at the University of Calgary. And he's going, oh, think of all the social programs you could have funded with that. No, 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 no. That is not the right way. You're an economist, dude. Come on. You know, this is the next industrial revolution. This is where industry is going. If we want to play in this field, if we didn't develop it, de-risk it and commercialize it, and we but we need to play in it, in that sandbox, then we have to buy it. We have to just spend the public money and and then use a, a policy and, and other tools at our disposal to build out the supply chains so that we create the tax revenue, we create the, the business opportunities, we create the jobs and spending it spending it on you know essentially consumption which is a social program it's not an investment in a in productivity or or new revenue you know but that is that economist's attitude is far too common in Canada and I and I think we need to we need to step up and I'm okay as a taxpayer spending a lot of money to get to play in this sandbox anyway for what it's worth Renewables and, and energy transition is capital intensive uh, investments and that capital, the majority of the infrastructure, uh, whether it's the wind turbines, the solar panels, that all of the return uh, on that the sale will go to other countries that have already invested um, in the build out of the technologies. And so we'll, you know, we're not making that the, as much margins as we would have if we had invested, but we're you know, 20, 30 years behind in the most of these technologies compared to other countries around the world. Oh, on that depressing note. <laughs> we still have tremendous opportunity. We have a tremendous position to, to work from and are, have a much lower margin of transition. However, we still are one of the most, the countries around the world that has the highest energy intensity, highest carbon thermal intensity outlook. And we have a responsibility to ensure that we are accelerating the energy transition. And that in North America, we get to it, uh, uh, a decarbonized economy by 2042 and we're net negative starting in 2042 so that other countries around the world have their opportunities to emit their fair share of carbon emissions. And so to be carbon capture at scale starting in 2042 is very short time frame. And, and those are areas that we can continue to invest in and carbon capture being a, a place where we have invested in uh, and do have a greater leadership in some of the other areas. And so when, when done right, carbon capture can help us um, get to our, the 2050 goals of holding global temperature within 1.52 degrees Celsius. Let's close out our conversation with carbon capture because there is a considerable amount of very legitimate, I think, analysis and criticism 
of carbon capture is nothing more than a way to uh, perpetuate the fossil fuel incumbency, particularly uh, around gas and to some extent, well, oil as well, because you'd be decarbonizing like the oil sands. And what's your take on that? Yes, absolutely. And and same thing for, for hydrogen, blue hydrogen. Um, when applied into the right sectors, the hard to abate sectors, it can be a tool that we need to get to a carbon negative economy and enable other countries around the world to emit their fair share. But we need to, first of all, build an energy efficiency. We need to decarbonize. We need to move to green hydrogen off of blue hydrogen. We need to figure out how do we carbon capture at scale, but not to emit more thermal emissions, but to decrease it. And so we do need to find this, the solutions to get to uh, gr green grid, but then green transportation systems, green energy use overall, um, and to get, to get carbon negative starting in 2042. So we have to put in the right policies to ensure that it's being done with the right values in place, um, with the right objectives, but it is part of the solution to, to get us to keep global warming in, in, in check. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I'm not prepared to throw carbon capture and utilization and storage out the window. One of the reasons, of course, is because as the, the, the Chinese, well, little story. I was at the World Petroleum Congress uh, in Calgary a couple of weeks ago and sat in on a a panel where it was about um, taking captured CO2 and turning it into products. And there were a couple of, uh, in fact, there was the VP of technology from Saudi Aramco and one of his lab managers, and then there was a Canadian and and uh, and somebody from China. And advanced materials from captured CO2 is a big deal, and it's going to be a huge deal 10, 15 years from now. And we have a little foothold, a toehold, uh, in that in that market, and we best and we best not lose it. But you know, in order to have captured CO two, you got to capture, got to have CCS at some point. So I can I can foresee uh, using CCUS in strategically in places you know like steel and and maybe even the short term in some natural gas power plants. You know, like Alberta's going to have a problem and, and Saskatchewan's going to have a problem. That might work, but then. Take a look at what the, the oil sands are doing, the Pathways Alliance. It wants $50 billion from the government to build a system, a CCUS system, that takes the CO2 from all of the, the oil sands plant and then buries it in a little, just north of a little place called Cold Lake on the northeast border, where nobody's going to do anything with that CO2. Whereas they could have redesigned the the the, the, the pipeline, to, you'd, ha you'd have some sequestration, uh, but you could do it near Fort Saskatchewan, where you have the Heartland Industrial uh, Cluster, and then maybe you know you could then now you can think about CO two as a feedstock, you know, and 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 some of the work that's being done down in Calgary and in other parts of the country, you know, could go okay. Now we got cheap, abundant, you know, high quality CO two feedstock. Boy, what can we make out of that? And and then away you go. But no, we're going to spend public money to basically just subsidize the the, the oil sands. And, and they're going to bury this stuff in a place where we don't know what to do with it. I mean, this is the way Canada approaches stuff. Very short-term, very myopic. We, we do have some opportunities. We have been able to set some ambitious goals, such as getting to a decarbonized power grid by 2035. And you know, we can continue to, to educate the, the policies to ensure that carbon capture is being used in an effective way to really decarbonize and deep decarbonization and not just for... Um, for further thermal um, and natural gas uh, consumption. So up to us to, to with the knowledge and experience, 
uh, and voice and trust to be able to communicate those messages to the decision makers. Well, good luck to us. That's all I can say as somebody who tries to communicate with those decision makers on a regular basis. Look, Marion, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting conversation, a very interesting report. I assume that uh, my listeners can find it on your dnv.com. Absolutely. Yes. All the data is public as addition, in addition to the report. And so I encourage you to, to, to download and, and engage, uh, communicate, um, look forward to the feedback. Where can we find, I assume we can find DNV uh, on like Twitter and, and LinkedIn and so on. We can, and, and listeners who would like to connect with you can do the, find you in Absolutely. the same place. Absolutely. Yes. Marion, Marion at, on LinkedIn um, and DNV has a Twitter feed. We'd love to communicate, uh, exchange ideas, um, and continue to drive the energy transition forward faster in a just and, and equitable way. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for this. Thank you very much. Thank you.